This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena Duchrot. Today, as best I could. I try not to get in my head about it, but what a strange thing, actually, an interview. You sit down with a complete stranger, you both pretend you're not nervous, and then you ask this stranger questions so intimate you wouldn't dream of asking family members or most friends. That anyone agrees to it fills me with gratitude every time. And in return, I do everything I can to make the person in front of me feel good. But the poet Aaron Smith was way ahead of me, making sure I was good. He started off by saying he'd try to speak slowly so that I wouldn't have too much trouble editing our conversation. My brain works quick, so I don't want to speak over you. It's probably part anxiety, part creative mind. So, <laughs> Really what I would like you to do is not speak any differently than you would. I want you to sound exactly the way you do. And I hope that, you know, you can just forget that we're on a podcast. Sure. I feel comfortable. Okay, good. I'm more, I was more worried about like, do we have everything you need? You know, can I give you a drink of water? You know, <laughs> in my poetry, I'm unapologetic, but I feel like everywhere else in my life, I'm like, oh my gosh, did that make you mad? Or, oh my gosh. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing. Are you one of those people who goes to therapy and is like, but how are you? I feel like my therapist disclosed more to me than they probably should. I mean, not inappropriately, but like I always find out if they have a partner or they get them to reference their child. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I need the flight attendants to like me. I mean, it really is a weird, <laughs> like I pay attention to the videos. I want them to know that I take it seriously. Safety serious. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Four years ago, Aaron's mother died. She was a fundamentalist Christian and he is gay, which is not the easiest setup if you have tendencies to people, please. And in the poems he wrote after his mother died, Aaron asks himself some of the hardest questions any child can ask. Did I give my mother what she needed? Or at least, did I do the best I could? When we sat down to talk about his collection, Stop Lying, Aaron told me he started writing these poems almost immediately after his mother died. What I was afraid would happen if I didn't write it immediately was that memory would change the experience of what really happened. So I got to spend probably the last three or four summers with my mom as she was sick and, you know, moving toward dying. And then I got to be with her when she died. And that felt like the most important thing that I've ever done, being with someone and taking them to wherever it is we go or don't go. Like that felt really important. And she died in 2019. And then we went into lockdown in 2020. So there was like this collective grief that was happening in the world. And I didn't want this grief to get lost. So I sat in the living room where she died. And it is where her father died. It was where my father proposed to her. And I just sat near that space. And I just wrote poems until I felt like I had enough to assemble the book. And that was its own challenge, too, because it's like death, 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 queer childhood funny. <laughs> death, 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 <laughs> you know. And But there was something about 
taking the material that I've been thinking about and working with through my entire poetry life and juxtaposing it in the shadow or just in the parallel to my mom's death. And also saying like, hey, I have always tried to tell the truth to the best of my ability. But in so many ways, I felt like I had still been lying. And I felt shame around being a gay man who had this weird unspoken thing with my family when the primary gay narrative is, oh no, we're all going to sit our families down and we're going to have this big conversation and it will be awkward, but then they'll pull you back in and love you and your future partner, you know, Bobby or whoever. (laughs) And that's not true. It wasn't for me and it's not true for a lot of people that I know. And I told her friends, sometimes I think the, the more transgressive part of my book is I was happy that I had kept things from my mother until she died. And right after she died, I felt a deep sense of relief. Like I did it. I protected her from so many things that might hurt her. And I don't feel bad about that. Uh-huh. And you wrote this incredible poem about the fact that Yeah, in a way, you're glad that you kept certain things from your mother, that Mm -hmm. she could die having been protected from Mm -hmm. that, even if it meant that you had to lie or that you had to efface yourself in ways. Mm -hmm. Um, The only thing I think it's called. Yes. And I was just wondering if you wanted to start there just as a way to enter that part of the conversation. Sure. It's on page seven. Yeah. So this is called The Only Thing. On my way home from the mall, I went to stop at the cemetery to tell mom what I bought. Blue sneakers with orange trim and Hollywood Park, a memoir by a singer she never heard of. I got a fast food hamburger and ate it in the car. I never told my mother I wrote books, and as far as I know, she never saw one. She googled me once and found an essay I wrote about being gay. She called my sister and cried, begged her to ask me to take it down. I didn't, and we pretended it never happened. She loved me without looking at me as best she could, and it was enough in the end, the only thing, after the broken years I wanted. Before they took her body from the house, I told my sister she knows all the answers now. Maybe I should be ashamed, but I'm not. I'm glad we kept lying so late in our lives that I was able to help her die. What we never said is forever now and small in comparison to the honest place we walked. It is remarkable how you keep twisting and turning. Like every time that I think, oh, okay, I get the point. Then no, you're kind of undoing it again, right? Like you start by saying, that, you know, you never told your mother I wrote books. Okay, so my initial reaction is like, ooh, that's bad. <laughs> I mean, you're a poet, you know, that, that's yeah. kind of a big deal. And then, you know, one time she found that essay, she cried, you know, asked you to take it down, you didn't, and we pretended it never happened. Again, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, that's not great. But then you go on, you know, she loved me without looking at me as best she could, and it was enough in the end. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we kept lying so late in our lives. Like, it's so counterintuitive. I'm glad we lied. You know, yeah. I don't think that people say that a lot. 
um, that I was able to help her die. And then the, the end, what we never said is forever now. I feel like, again, that sadness creeps in there, yeah. you know? Yeah. And small in comparison to the honest place we walked. Can you tell me about how you can keep lying and yet walk an honest place with her? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I'd never helped someone die or been around death like that. And it was so profoundly important. Like my vision of it was I was going to be a wreck. I was going to be inconsolable. And what happened is I was very calm and it felt like I had to do that for her. And I think had I forced her, like, you must see me, you must know that I'm writing all of these truths. I think it would have put a distance between us that never would have allowed us to have that intimate experience. So for all of the, and, and I, I believe that she knew things that she didn't say as well. I think it was lies on both sides. And I would also say that lying in our family is not exclusively a queer issue. My sister lies to my parents too. We are a family of secrets, which is something that made me want to write was fundamentalist Christianity. I mean, one of the tenets is to bring every thought under subjection to God. So they not only want your belief, they want your very being. So for me to have any kind of self left with so much shame and so much, so many people and in, in the culture I was in telling me, no, I had to find one like core kernel, one place. And poetry was that place for me where I can have that voice. Mm-hmm. So I knew that she'd found the essay and she called my sister instead of me. And my sister quickly poured a vodka. I think <laughs> she, I was here. She's like, you know, she knows. And I had that moment where it was like, she asked me to take it down. And that was sort of the, the preparation in my mind was when, or if they encounter my work, I would stand by it. Yeah. That was sort of the moment where I'm like, okay, I'm not giving that up. And then I think we both were sort of like, there's stuff we don't want to know. I know she felt that. And I was like, what do I need her to know? The art was mine. I had that. Early in my writing life, I had a chance to spend time with Mark Doty. And I, and I know Mark now, but before I, I really knew Mark, we were in Boston and he looked at me and said, you don't owe your parents your work. And that was one of the most generous things that a writer's ever said to me. Mark probably doesn't even remember it. And I think it's the things that writers just say casually that stay with people. And it helped alleviate that sort of burden. Like, oh, again, it's another narrative. You write this book and everyone's like so proud of you and you have to tell everyone. And I was like, well, people don't go to work their job as a chemical engineer and come home, discuss every aspect of it. And some people might say that's a cop out. They're like, yeah, but they're not engineering things about their family. You know, if I can use a bad um, sort of, I guess, metaphor, is that a metaphor? <laughs> I, I see what you mean. I should know these words. Yeah. But as, good, yes. good. as long as we're both in it, good. But I, I needed that to, to get through. And I had a therapist And I was like, you know, again, it was more like what I felt like I should feel versus what I did feel. Uh So it was like, 
I feel like people saying they're saying to me, oh, you should go tell her all these unfinished things. And my therapist was like, well, why would you do that to someone who's dying, who has a faith that works for them that they need the most now? Why would you go say, I need you to know all of these things just to add more complication? And I think it's strange probably to the generations behind me who I think I'm not saying everyone's been able to come out more easily, but I feel like there's more acceptance overall. Like I do feel like there's more acceptance of gay people. I love where we are with, um, they, them pronouns. I love that people are troubling the binary and, and being themselves, but I do feel like I didn't want to lose my family and I would have, I just know that, but I didn't want to lose my poetry either. And I had a good and bad things happen on the same day. The day I found out that my poem, what it feels like to be Aaron Smith was going to be in best American poetry. My father and I got in a huge, terrible fight. It was just a nasty fight and we both were terrible. And then I had to give a reading the next day. So a student asked me, they're like, how do you deal? I always get this question. How do you deal with writing your family? And I've never had, I never had a good answer. It was one of those things where I would wing it depending on the day. <laughs> you know? Like, I don't know. And that day I gave the answer that solved it for me. My father would have been an asshole whether I wrote my poems or not. Huh. Wow. The only person who would have suffered for me not writing my poems would have been me. And that solved it for me. After that, I was like, he's going to be who he is. My mom was going to be who she is. And I had to be who I am as best I could. Mm-hmm. And also be generous to myself. You know, it's, it is a big deal to be raised in what I think is essentially a cult and to make your way out of it and yeah, it's been many days as a kid. Don't go crazy. Don't go crazy. Don't go crazy. Like, you know, my mind, I thought it was going to crack so many times and just sort of slowly. It's like closet within closet within closet. You know, it felt like it was so many levels of uncovering that days when I'm feeling generous. I'm like, you did okay. You know, you did okay. And you made art out of it. And some days I'm not generous to myself, but on good days, I'm like, okay, you made it and you made art. And some young writers come up to me and they're like, your work helped me so much or thank you for writing about shame. And those are the spaces that I'm most interested in. The narratives we tell ourselves, the spaces where we survive the role of poetry in, in being truthful and what's truth mean. This is another thing that kind of was almost like a slap in the face in, in your poems in general, but especially in this book, is how I'm trying to avoid the word straight. Uh, how how <laughs> to the point you are with your truth telling. Like there's very little padding in these poems, you know. And there's this one poem. It's called Afterlife, mm-hmm. and it in its entirety it goes like this. Sometimes the hardest part is wondering if my mother died believing I would go to hell. It's such a tiny poem and it is such a terribly painful question Mm -hmm. so simply phrased that it just knocked the wind out of me 
Sometimes the hardest part is wondering if my mother died believing I would go to hell. What happened that you could actually land there and not try to be smart or try to be this or try, you know, that you're just like, no, I'm just going to say it as clear as I can. Yeah, I would probably get the quote wrong, but Bruce Weigel has a poem called The Impossible, and he says, say it clearly and you make it beautiful no matter what. And it's following a really difficult scene where he was abused and he talks about it in detail. And for me, craft and emotion have always ran side by side. And when I was in graduate school in the 90s, there was a lot of back and forth between poems or language experiences. And we would hear a lot, nobody wants to hear all of these personal details. You're relying on quote unquote shock value. And I look back now and I can see it was just sort of that heterosexist, heterosexual, yeah, heterosexist system. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a good word. <laughs> yeah. Really trying to keep us behaving in a certain way. And I, I couldn't quite, obviously I couldn't quite see it then. I would even hear this exact quote. Well, straight audiences want to hear that. Yeah. 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 Uh huh. Like uh -huh. we were put in that is exactly, you know, who we should be thinking about. So that kind of clarity for me has always been political in a certain way. Like I'm going to make you sit with this idea And if I decorate it too much in a certain way, I'm softening the impact mm. for you. So for me, that thought arranging an in-line break to even slow you down and to pace you in it, I want you to have to sit with it for a short minute. I joked with the reading I gave two nights ago. And I said, I'm going to read this poem. And it was students. They were great. I said, it's really intense. Sometimes when I read it, I can't believe the things that are that are coming out of my mouth. I said, but you only have to sit with it for about a minute and 30 seconds. I have to live with it in my brain all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like that. It's like if a little bit of truth can bring an intensity and make you stop and have the experience of that truth that in some ways I have to say that as a poem too, you know, and it is it is better than being um, quote unquote smart because I think in its own way it is smart. And for me, it's it feels distinctly queer. I'm sure other people who, who write who aren't queer relate to maybe that straightforward type of poem in their own way. And I believe poetry is a queer form. I mean, it transgresses prose, the line break, all of these things just go against what we, you know, how we think about using language. So I've always loved it and I'm obsessed with line break. So all of that for me is, is really essential in making. And sometimes I do like to stop and say, okay, we've had all of this. We've had these stories. We've had these juxtapositions, but sometimes it just comes down to this. I worry that my mother died thinking I would go to hell. And that's just a really big moment. And it gets into those things that are unresolved that you can never resolve when someone dies. I mean, my mom, my mom can't know large things about my life and she can't know that we voted that horrible woman off the condo board. You know, all of these things and they sort of exist on a similar plane when someone's gone, the little things and the big things. But the big questions, 
you can't know, but I still don't regret. I might regret the circumstances of our lives, like mm-hmm. Marie House says, but I don't regret how we navigated what we were given. Huh. Wow. That's actually the best you can hope for in a way, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's a way when you read poetry and you study it, you learn that I might write an entire book of intense poems. And the poet Lynn Melnick talked about this when we had her on our podcast. And she said, my life's actually not as intense as my book. Like, you know, (laughs) I walk to CVS. I do things for my kids. I'm like, yeah, I watch a lot of TV. You know, I hang out with my dogs. So, you know, you assemble a book. And I think about my first book, you know, I have a poem called Things I Could Never Tell My Mother. And it's a list of all of these things that I did that that would disappoint her. I wrote it after an argument in graduate school in 15 minutes. And now it stands as a piece of art that has been there for years. And I'm like, God, how crushing that would be to my mom to think all of our time together was reduced to all these intense moments. So it didn't feel even honest in a way to say, you don't understand this, but now I want you to sit with everything that we sort of messed up. Because that's what I was drawn to making art about. But we had wonderful Christmases. She and I went shopping all the time. You know, we went on vacation. So I felt like it was unfair to say, I need you to see this and and um, react to it the way I want you to react to it. And if you don't, then somehow you're at fault still. And sure, I can blame you know, my parents for the religion and and the shame. But like... My mom got her own dose of that stuff, too. She was raised in it. She was a person who was trying to survive. And I think maybe that's age. You know, getting older, you look back and think, wow, they really did do the best. They they had it, they had it tough at times. And yeah. who told them they were going to have like a five-year-old who was coming to them saying, I think I'm gay. I just learned that word, you know, and I'm sure that blew their minds. Yeah. As a five-year-old, oh, my God. It, I... I just so cute little Aaron I'm I'm just uh if you don't if you don't object I'm just loving on him um <laughs> well, retroactively do you, you want to hear do you want to hear the story that's it's kind of heartbreaking about yeah. me telling my mom that I thought I was gay so that was the beginning of the AIDS pandemic before we knew really what was going on and I had like crushes on men the way kids do like an affinity this little thrill but of course I was a kid and I remember seeing a news story that said gay men were getting gay cancer. And then I realized that being gay meant having feelings for men. So I had to go tell my mom I thought I was gay at like five or six because I was afraid I was going to get cancer. Wow. So that I didn't know anything, obviously, but that was sort of the shadow. And then that's the shadow my generation of gay men grew up in. Yeah, yeah. Like from the start, like at its conception, like literally the concept has like death kind of built into it. Sure, had disease built into it. And there was so much misinformation when we were coming up too. We didn't know you know, certain things. I have a, a moment in the book and in, in the poem, my 1990s. And I say, do you need a condom for oral? And people hear that and they're like, oh my gosh, that's absurd. But those were the questions that were floating around and 
you know, depending on where you live, there was terrible information about, and there were homophobic doctors and, you know, you'd go in for like, you hurt your ankle and they would start asking you if you slept with men or women. So then you don't want to tell your doctor the truth, you know? And it was just, so when I came to gay poetry, it was a lot of AIDS poetry. So even my introduction to the art was, you know, these beautiful elegies that shaped it, but just so much pain, you know, so much difficulty And so, yeah, so it was a, it was a very difficult way to grow up, but I'm really glad that I was able to find art because I do think, and I know sometimes we say this and it sounds melodramatic, but it really kept me alive. It helped organize the mess and it helped me realize that like, wait, I can have a quote unquote weird brain. And I can say these things. And when I found Sharon Old, Satan says, that book just changed everything. And it was before Amazon and I had to special order it at a bookstore in the mall. And we drove 45 <laughs> minutes and I snuck and got it because I didn't know what my mom would think if she saw Satan says. <laughs> <You know? Yep. laughs> and that book changed everything. And and it's funny, I've only met Sharon Olds a couple times and I hear she's lovely, but I kind of don't want to know her because if I had any type of bad interaction, I'd be devastated. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's so interesting. How To just go back to the story, How did your mother react when you were like five or six and you came to her with that news? She was like, oh, no, you're, you know, you're not gay. God would never let someone be gay who doesn't want to be. And it was very much like and then we started it. You know, I didn't get sent away to a conversion therapy camp, but she started telling me anytime you have these thoughts, you should say I rebuke them in the name of Jesus. It's like she wanted me to self brainwash. And I was a little kid, you know, and when people hear that, they're like, what's that even mean? You know, that's such a strange thing. Like, what do you mean? But it was like, you changed the thought. She was very much like you changed the thought. And in the book, it's, I I realize this may sound strange. Like a couple of times I mentioned my mom's hysterectomy Mm -hmm. and I know people are probably like, why do you do that? Well, right after she had that, when I was a little kid, she started having kind of what she would call nerve problems. And I believe now it was undiagnosed mental health, like uh, uh, obsessive compulsive. She needed medication. So that was a moment in our life when her mental state changed. So when I bring it up, it's because that's when I think that she even started having more intrusive thoughts or like religious OCD. So that's a turning point for me. And I and I feel like maybe I, I don't always get that across. And I don't want people to think that I'm a man commenting on, you know, a woman's hysterectomy, but for us, and, and again, I don't think that she got the care she needed. I think that she probably had terrible men doctors who didn't take care of her, but in her head, medication was not something I think she could even have conceived of. So she thought I'm just going, there's something in the Bible. Like if you speak, speak something, it'll, it'll become, and and I literally can't remember. And I don't expect you to look it up, but she would try to like, I'm healed in the name of Jesus. I'm healed in the name of Jesus to try to fix her difficulties. And she tried to have me do that. Mm -hmm. And obviously it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at all and and I didn't need it to work you know I I've I've I have queer joy too I always want to say like I write about intensity but I've had you know so far and hopefully there's more I've had a really great you know queer life too 
go back to the untidiness of the stories that you tell, one story that I think in the culture at large gets told in a very tidy way is like, I was raised fundamentalist Christian and then I got out, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's always like how the narrative goes. Um, well, especially because I didn't grow up here. Mm -hmm. Like I don't know anyone personally who grew up like fundamentalist Christian. So mm -hmm. can you tell me like the ways in which like growing up that showed up and that also didn't show up. Mm -hmm. People often don't know this. There are so many sex. Sex uh -huh. is that <laughs> not sex. There's no sex. <laughs> There's so many sex. Yeah. That in fundamentalist Christianity, you yeah. know, so it's like, and then what was funny, it's like they would debate though. Some people believe that God would come back and set up a kingdom on earth. Other people believe you die, you go straight to heaven or hell. My grandfather committed suicide and they were like, oh, he's burning in hell now. You know, so you're, you're a kid thinking, oh my God, like this is like, you know, his new reality. So we went to church three times a week. Sometimes it'd be two hours at a time. And then I also, my sister and our neighbor, we started singing in a trio and we would travel to other churches and sing. And I still love the music. I mean, the music was such a gift to me and my grandfather was the preacher. Mm -hmm. So I think my mom, thankfully, one of her beliefs is, was you're in the world, not of the world. So in some ways we were lucky because she would let us participate in the world, but we were supposed to be, I guess, a light. So we were able to go to normal school. It was like, but if everyone else is swearing, we didn't swear. I mean, it's that kind of thing. So that was actually, we were very lucky because I think some people have very much, you have to dress a certain way and you have to do these things. So ours was just a lot more of like, you have to get saved and then that salvation can be taken away. And it was almost like, even if you swore and then Jesus decided to come back on the clouds, you could go to hell for one swear, you know, in relation to an entire life. And it sounds absurd now, but when your brain is younger and, and you're, you know, being told that it sticks and it's a worry. My sister told me that she still has moments when there's a terrible thunderstorm where she has that initial dread of like Jesus could be returning. Huh. And she doesn't believe that, but it's like this initial panic and it's just so ingrained in the body. And that may be why I write about the body a lot too. I think queerness manifests in the body, you know, but then also the muscle memory of the religion and then, and then being told that your body's sinful, you know, all of those things. So did that answer the fundamentalist part or not? If I didn't quite get oh, yeah, everything that part, you wanted. Okay. In part, I, I'm just like eager to know a little bit more. Like for instance, um, did you believe when you were a kid? I was definitely a believer. Uh huh. I believed very much. And I thought, God would take away my gayness. I believed I wanted to go to heaven. I really, really tried. And I think the bigger disappointment is when you really do believe and then you find out none of it is true. Whereas I have friends who are like, I never believed that. I was seven and I knew they were full of shit. I really wanted it to be true. Mm. So when people ask me, what I am now, I say, I think I'm a disappointed atheist. 
you know, like, I'm like, that's too bad. It, it sounded so cool when it worked, you know, but then when I realized I was a damned outsider, it was like, because gay people are turned over to a reprobate mind, meaning they think they're okay, but they're not. So then that's another mind game. Like, wait a minute, do I still believe in Jesus or does Jesus turned his back on me? And in Appetite, my second book, I talk about being a little kid and I was masturbating to a magazine and I felt like that was the moment when God turned his back on me. So a very early sexual experience, I was like, that's the moment that I was damned. And the artist David Vonarovich has this really powerful story where he talks about he stole some money from his father. I believe it was his father. And he knew that if his father found out, he would kill him. So he asked God, he's like, I'm going to go around to the side of the house and I want you to meet me there and, you know, help me. And he said, God didn't show up. And he said, and that's when he knew there was no God. Um, so I, I think, yeah, about you can only be disappointed so many times, you know, <laughs> um, Jesus is the ultimate abusive relationship. And I really mean that I don't, I don't, you know, would never take an abusive relationship lightly, but it's true. It's very abusive. You can never do enough and it's always your fault. That's the trick. You didn't believe enough. You needed to try harder and you just, you know, it obviously gayness is gayness. I mean, I'm gay and that is the thing you can't, you yeah. know, yeah. And so in that moment, right, where you realize, oh, I'm damned, I mm -hmm. might as well not believe anymore because this is not, I'm not welcome here, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how did you then find your way to that private space within yourself where you could be a poet, where your thoughts were yours, where your thoughts were not subject to like the, the scrutiny and the judgment of, you know, whether it's God or it's your parents, you know, like how did that happen? In some ways, that's all you have in order to survive. You've got to find somewhere to go. And I'd always been interior and it was a scary place too. It was very fraught, especially when you're like battling, like, you know, they believe in Satan as much as, as they believe in God. Like these two people are always pulling at you and they, they're kind of people-ish. They say they're not, but like, you know, God's the little man and Satan's the little man. And they're always trying to, you know, get your soul. And then I think I read William Colin Bryant, William Colin Bryant's poem, Thanatopsis. And it was something beautiful. I don't think there is anything in the poem. It's a poem about death, but there wasn't anything in the poem per se that gave me any sort of comfort but I was just sort of astonished by this kind of making like, wow, this is so beautiful. And it's saying big, important things. And then I started writing really bad poetry. And then as I started finding better poems, I was like, oh my gosh, these people are weirdos too. <laughs> In such a wonderful way. You know, I love, and I use weirdo with just affection. Sure. And I have a, First cousin once removed, her mom is my her mom is my grandfather's sister. Her name is Darnell Arnault. She has two books of poems with Louisiana State University and a novel with Simon and Schuster. Not bad. Yeah, she's terrific, an amazing writer and teacher. She came to visit and 
she said something about poems and I showed her my poems and they were terrible. I was in high school. She was so lovely and generous. And then she gave me best American poetry, 1993, the Louise Glick issue. Still my favorite. Tim Dugo's healing the world from battery park is in there. Denise Duhamel's feminism. I mean, there's just so many amazing poems And then she would look at my poems. She was one of the first people to ask me if I was gay. I lied then, but she she knew. And then I went to West Virginia Wesleyan College and I got to study with the poet laureate of the state, Irene McKinney. And she was fearless. She wrote what she wanted. She encouraged us to write our truth. And it was such a, just an amazing space to be in. And once I found the poets and the voice and them writing these difficult things, I knew that I wasn't alone. And I think that's why I think of poetry as a queer form, because it felt queer in that sense. It wasn't about sexuality, but it was about being outsiders and and, and having transgression and, and queerness and all those sort of interesting ways. There's something in the in an interview that you once said about, you know, you're only teaching at Lesbian University because you're a poet and that that kind of ruins it sometimes. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yes. I guess I have to write a poem. But you do sound genuinely grateful to the form, you know. Oh, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. And I think there's a very long ongoing conversation about people hating Pobiz versus poetry. But I was really fortunate to come up I think fortunate before social media, Mm. before we all knew each other so well, or we knew personas before we knew poems. So we used to have to, I remember Spring Church Book Company was this little mail order book company ran by Ed O'Chester, who later became my editor and his wife, Britt. And they would send out this big Xeroxed several sheets of paper and they'd fold it over and it's every book that they had. And we go through my friend, we'd highlight all these books and then you would order them and they would show up and it was amazing. And it was like these secret texts being passed around these secret things like, Oh, what am I going to get from this? So we just had the literature first. We didn't know anything. I I knew nothing about like awards or somebody's getting this and I didn't get that or somebody gets this fellowship and you know and I didn't. So it was just the work and I don't begrudge anyone their success or getting to make a living from readings or anything. But for me it was just always more about the art and I don't want to say that it's not about art for those people either. I want to be clear. I don't want anyone mad at me because I'm not trying to be shady. If I were being shady, I would tell you. (laughs) And then I would do it. But I do think sometimes you go to the conferences and you see people like talking to you, but looking over your shoulder for someone maybe more important or I think all of that. And then also, you know, if you study with the right people, I do think when you start putting in an academia, I think there is a certain kind of pedigree. And I think like if you have a chance to study with someone who won a Nobel Prize, you know, and maybe you went to Columbia, I think it might make you more marketable when you start getting into jobs. And again, amazing for the people who've had those experiences. But I do think there's an outsider status that a lot of poets feel. And a lot of awards in poetry, like you can get them only for your first or second book and then that's it. And if you survive for 50 years, you might get like a big one on the other side. (laughs) Right. And so I do think, I think it's human nature to 
want more recognition. You know, it feels good. But I think somebody, there's a joke like they imagine Seamus Haney when he was still living, woke up every morning and said, I wish more people were paying attention to my poems. I mean, I don't think that anyone ever probably quite feels that, you know, they're being heard. Maybe that's why we're obsessively making. So for me, it's like reminding myself to get back to the essential, going back to the books that that just made me want to do it and finding that intensity because I don't think I don't think you can create that real intensity in the work if you're not in an authentic space. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I feel like that's how I see through the politics or through the some days teachings fantastic. Some days it's absolutely exhausting. Nobody's read, you know, you're just like, oh my God. And you're like, this is Marie Howe's What the Living Do. These are some of the most important elegies about people who died of AIDS. Her brother died and you're just, you did, you skimmed it, you know? And, and I, I, will, I will stop class sometimes and say, I know you're rushing and I know that you have so many things to read, but stop and look at this book for a minute and think, you know, not just Marie Howe's book, but this person may not be speaking to their family anymore because this, in some cases, people have been exiled or imprisoned for saying this. So just stop for a second and think about the artist who did that. And I think when you find that intensity in a book, regardless of someone's awards or where they went to school, I think that is where poetry lives. And that's what excites me still. Well, let's go get to another poem. I was thinking the poem Stupid Beauty on okay. page 46. Also, if ever I, I pick a poem where you're like, no, I'm disappointed by that one or like, let's not do, do tell me. Okay. I haven't read from this book hardly at all. Oh, and wow. after I turned it in, I didn't look at it. And I used to walk around obsessively just looking at it after I submitted them. It was just really painful. It was like after I wrote it, it caught up with me in certain ways. And it just made me really sad. And I think I was able to keep it through the lens of art while I was making it. But after I made it, it's like, wow, these are my mom's dad. And these are the poems about it. So I think that's probably why I haven't looked at it as closely. So that's a long way of saying I'm happy to read <laughs> whatever you would like to hear. Does it feel in a way like a second kind of finality? Like she's dead and the poems are finished? Yes. It feels like now that the project is complete, she's gone. It's Yeah, yeah it's a second closing. And then what I also found was in certain ways, I was like, oh, I'm I'm grieving. I'm putting this in the work and I'm going to do this and I'm facing the grief head on when I realized that the poetry protected me from the grief more than I knew. And I felt like she, she will have been dead four years this coming October. And I feel like I started feeling it more last fall and this winter because I think the project was finished and now I had no in between 
no buffer, no way, no lens to put it through. And now I'm just a person in the world whose mom's dead. The other thing that happened last month is one of my best friends completed suicide. And so it's been, and then my dog died in November, which some people don't think is huge, but it was devastating. And then my friend who I, we were, we've known each other since we lived in New York in 2001. Um, very surprising that it happened. So I think about, I'm like, how many more griefs can I, and I don't want to ask. Like, no, <laughs> I don't no. know what I believe, but I don't want to put it out there just in case there's something, yeah. you know. Um, so I think it's probably going to be my subject on and off for for a very long time. And yeah, I, I don't know. I think I hope that it becomes something that lives in a pocket, yeah. you know, in, inside of me. I think of um, Mashiko Dead by Jack Gilbert. And it's all told through the metaphor of this man trying to carry this box and just you know, arranging it and putting on the shoulder and moving it around. And I just hope the box gets smaller. Yeah, yeah. Or your shoulders get stronger. I guess it's usually how it goes, right? Well, as a gay man, that would be great if I had <laughs> <broad> shoulders. <laughs> I'll take that. I'll, if grief, if grief can make me be in very great shape, I'll take that. <laughs> Do you want to read Stupid Beauty? Sure. Did I tell you that it was on page forty-six? You did, I think. Okay. I found it, but I think okay, you told good. me. <laughs> Stupid Beauty. The sun dissolves through the window. Three weeks in my condo. Only text or dog walks. The grocery store quickly with my head down. Grief still lines the aisles in uniform boxes. No people, person to come home to, to bring me food because he doesn't want me to be hungry. Nobody to drive me to a simple procedure if I need a simple procedure. For a moment... I feel like something good might happen, like when I was young in a humid city, trying on tight shirts with my shoulders back, thinking I too could have a story. I'll spend the night cleaning the kitchen, wiping crumbs to the floor, sweeping, opening something else I bought that I'll only look at once. A body untouched is still a body I used to believe. Nothing of anything will ever be enough. My mother is dead. I wasted so much time. Why is this so hard to say? Yeah. Again, Aaron, I mean, you, you say things out loud that I feel like even the why is this so hard to say rings so true, right? Where it's like, mm -hmm. I've just said it and actually I kind of want to take it back immediately. You know, like, I don't mm -hmm. know if I can even bear the truth of that. Mm -hmm. it, that's at least how I hear it. And, you know, I worry, too. It's like I worry earlier in the book, I'll say I don't regret anything. And then other times I'm like, oh, I'm having a day where maybe I feel like, do I regret it? Ultimately, no. But it doesn't mean that we don't have periods where we question our decisions, where we question the way that we decided to navigate the world. Um, one thing that that strikes me even in this conversation, after my book, The Book of Daniel came out, I was flying home from my mother's funeral. 
and she died on the seventh and the book came out officially on the first. And when I landed at Logan airport, the publicist from Pitt, she's like, you just got a really great review, but I do want to give you a heads up because he quoted the line from the book where they say, your mother told you to get AIDS and die. So I literally left her funeral, landed in Logan airport and they, I, I just so appreciated they wanted to give me a heads up. And I remember in Logan, I, I went and I called my sister and I sat down by the baggage claim and wept. I was like, did I do the right thing? Like, you know, what is this? I, I wrote all these things and, and it wasn't always bad. It was just, you know, these, these moments that happened. And my sister was so great. She's like, she's like, you're an artist. And the artist looks at everything. And the artist has to think about all the aspects and God, she just gave me so much what I needed then. And um, so it, it doesn't mean that it's easy and it doesn't mean that you're always like resolute, like I have this, but like, I believe that I did the best that I could. And that's, I think all we can hope for as people, we do the best that we can. You know, what I find so interesting in what you're saying now about this poem, Stupid Beauty, mm-hmm. and then the same thing in the poem that we read at the beginning, the only thing, it seems like your concern is about, am I doing justice to my mother mm-hmm. in on the page, but also to her, you know, like, mm-hmm. have I protected her sufficiently? Mm-hmm. Have I helped her die? Yeah. Um, have I, you know, and then on the page, like, have I mischaracterized her in ways Mm -hmm. that you know i wouldn't want for her yeah Um, and that's a concern we have as kids right Mm -hmm. but we also need something from our parents right well like we need Mm -hmm. that same concern from them for us do you feel like you got that somebody said once like all we want is our parents acceptance i don't think that's all i ever wanted I feel like I figured out early I wasn't going to get it. Sure, there were times like, God, I wish that they understood me or I wish they accepted me. What would that mean for my life? But I think very early I came to terms with the fact that I wasn't going to get that. So to long for it was going to be pretty much fruitless. And I think I just wanted to know that they loved me. You know, that's probably what I wanted. Like, did they love me in spite of the things that they were afraid of or the things that they thought were going to damn me? You know, like the poem we talked about, Afterlife. And I do feel like I got that. You know, I definitely got that from my mom. I think that she probably made a lot of concessions in her life and her belief system to the extent that she was able to, to love me. And and, and that means something. Yeah, it's like what you know that line that you wrote in that poem we read at the beginning. The only thing you write, she loved me without looking at me mm-hmm. as best she could, and it was enough in the end. Yeah, the love. Yeah, the love. Yeah, and so I guess yeah, not acceptance and like all my decisions, but the love. Yeah, and and I did get that, and it's it's odd to look at the poem "Stupid Beauty." That poem feels particularly vulnerable to me. 
because as a gay man at age 48, again, these expectations that I wrestle against, I should have a, a partner, I should be settled. We do all the struggling to come out so we can have this certain life. And then I'm like, oh, I don't have it, you know? And yeah. But I'm not, I'm not sure I want it, but then I'm like, well, what do I want? So, so it's odd, like the poems, I think we get back to that intensity. That might be yeah. me on one evening. And then the next yeah. night I'm like, oh my God, I'm watching Big Bang Theory with my dogs and it's great. I, and I can order an expensive art book because I don't have any kids, you know? I mean, it's fantastic, you know? Yes, yes, yes. Um, I mean, in the beginning you said that, you know, you wanted to write those poems right away because you didn't want memory to get lost, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Now that your memory is inevitably getting skewed and turned and twisted around, what's it been like, actually, to kind of revisit the moment when you had that memory really clear? What's it been like? There was a moment when I read, like I said, I read a couple days ago where I was like, am I going to cry? Yeah. It's like I was hearing it. And even early in our interview, I had a moment like, am I going to start crying? <laughs> that I didn't, you know, I don't want to sit here and cry on you. So it, it hits me in ways that surprise me. And then because it's permanent now, those poems make it permanent I'm allowed to interact with them in various ways. Sometimes, you know, I read them and I'm like, wow, that's so hard to remember. But other times I'm like, that's a pretty good poem. You know, like, like my favorite line break in the book is in Stupid Beauty, you know, or the, the line where I say a body line break untouched is still a body line break. I used to believe I'm so happy with that enjambment. <laughs> Absolutely. Cause you're saying it and then you're unsaying it in a way. Yeah. Right? Like I a mean, body so untouched is still a body. I'm strident. Uh, you know, this is, well, I used to believe, okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's my favorite thing about yeah. line break. That's what yeah. thrills me. So I, I'm able to look at them too, just from craft, but then, um, yeah, for me, I just wanted a permanent record. And I believe my mom had so many unfulfilled dreams. I think she had undiagnosed mental illness. And I think about what the world could have been for her had she maybe not grown up in, you know, that religion, had she maybe, you know, been able to approach things differently. And I think that she lived an amazing life in so many ways, you know, you know, she started out as a school cook and then she took classes and became a teacher's aide. And she was so nervous about being able to do that. And she was so proud and I was so proud of her. And then, you know, she put us through school. She would get up at four in the morning and go cook and she'd come home with burns on her arm. And she just did it because she wanted to put us through college, you know? So the affection is so much more than any of the difficulty. And then even in the opening, I say, I dedicate the book for my mom who wanted more from this world than she got. And sometimes that is the bigger sadness for me is I just wish that I could go back and give her everything that she wanted. So, except grandkids, I didn't want, I didn't want kids. <laughs> That's too big. That's too big of an ask. <laughs> but, but, you know, all joking aside, I just wish I could go back and give her more of the things that she wanted because she was a really neat person. Oh, Aaron, thank you so much. And I'm sorry. 
that you lost Thank her. you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Can we sit here for another minute and I'm just going to record the silence? Of course. And I could read another poem if you think you need one or something. So maybe mm-hmm. mom in casket I picked out. Would sure. you be comfortable with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is one I think that pushes against the narratives, narrative poems yeah, yeah. in the book, because I can look down the page and I get really freaked out when you see a poem and it's all and and but conjunctions, all these articles, <laughs> A and V. So it's like we can't escape them. Right. And it just freaks me out. I'm like, but I don't want all these throwaway words. Yeah. This is not so, the New York Times. We're not trying to be ex- like legible, legible. Yeah, ex- exactly. So these I was like, how many of those words, those excess words can I get rid of? And in many ways, it became, I think, at least one language of grief for me. Like, to, if I'm really going to get to the essential, then what is the language that needs to be there? But I can still get this across. So this is Mom and Casket I Picked Out. Mom and Casket I Picked Out. Wearing shirt she bought when we shopped at mall. Not time she fainted, but time before. Undertaker cut shirt up back. Glued eyes shut. Ripped necklace from neck. Dad wanted back. Goodbye, mom, I said. Did the best I could. Preacher wouldn't take hand off my back. Tried not to piss off dad at lunch. His old friends wanted photos. A mile away, my mother's being buried in dirt. Said to James, Wayne, Tommy, Joel, and these motherfuckers want pictures smiled while dirty beard loser cousin made rabbit ears behind someone's head. Camera flash. One more. Another flash. The lipstick they put on you, mom, was pink you'd never wear. Everyone, almost everyone, liked it. I had the hardest time with that last sentence. And my sister still apologizes for that lipstick. I I saw it and I was like, that's a terrible color. I guess that's having a gay son. And um, <laughs> she's like, it was in her drawer. It was with her makeup. And I was like, I know. I said, and I don't, I don't fault you, but she'll still say, I'm so sorry about that lipstick. It's still something that 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 haunts her. And and I I would never do that to make her feel bad, but it just it just that's the part that didn't look like her. Yeah. And that was, you know, kind of difficult. I totally get that's why. I mean, I just I read that line and I could have never you could have never made that up, right? It yeah. has to be true to come to you, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. But the moment you wrote it, I thought my mom is also really someone who just she has such a particular style and it would be almost like a moral offense to put mm-hmm. her in the wrong thing, you know? And so mm-hmm. I really felt that one. And yeah, back to what you said about I, I really wish that I could have given my mother what she or that she could have had the life she wanted, you know? Yeah. And I believe that she loved being a mom, you know, and I believe that she had a good life in so many ways. I just think that there was that longing that so many of us have. And I think a lot of us get a chance to investigate it. And I think practical expectations on her maybe kept her from getting a chance 
you know, to explore those things. So, yeah, it's like she was good enough. Yeah. You know, even even the failures, even the strain between us, even, you know, the parts that she couldn't accept about me, you know, I really think she did the best she could. Smith is the author of five poetry collections, Stop Lying, The Book of Daniel, Primer, Appetite, an NPR Great Read and finalist for the Patterson Poetry Prize, and Blue on Blue Ground, winner of the Agnes Lynch Sterrett Prize. He's a three-time finalist for the Lambda Literary Award and received fellowships from the New York Foundation for the Arts and the Mass Cultural Council. He's an associate professor in creative writing at Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus and Erik van der Westen. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>